Phoenix Pod on international politics in Turkey from Phoenix Politik. Welcome to Phoenix Pod. This is Mehmet Yegin and today we have Dr. Gülay Türkmen with us. Dr. Türkmen is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Graz Center for Southeast European Studies. She is the author of Under the Banner of Islam, Turks, Kurds and the Limits of Religious Unity, recently published by Oxford University Press. Dr. Türkmen, welcome to our podcast again. Thank you so much. Thanks for the kind invitation. I want to start with your take on the possibility of a new round of peace talks between the Turkish government and PKK. Recently, uh, former PM Surusakak mentioned the possibility of a new peace process in December. And Erdogan's People's Alliance partner, Devlet Bahçeli, pointed the opposite direction and called for the closure of the pro-Kurdish party, HDP. So where's the Kurdish issue heading? to a round of peace process or, or a party closure? So, I mean, it's difficult to answer this question um, because as we all know, Turkish politics is like a roller coaster and it changes from uh, day to one day to the next. Uh, it can go in different directions. So whatever answer I give to this question will be quite speculative, but still, I think um, right now, a new round of peace process doesn't really seem likely, um, especially because, um, as you mentioned, um, the um, coalition partner of AKP, um, the MHP, um, the, it's a very internationalist party and it doesn't look like it will allow for a new round of peace process to uh, take place. Um, so I think I am a bit, I have a bit more gloomy take on this. Um, and I uh, think looking at uh, the recent developments in the Turkish political scene um, and uh, party closure is, it's, it looks more likely than a new round of peace process. But of course, as I said, we never know when it comes to Turkey, things change overnight. So Let's be uh, hopeful about that. Let's assume that there will be a, another peace process. What will be its parameters and how it would be different from the previous ones? So, um, I mean, uh, of course I wouldn't know how it would look like, but I could only um, come up with some suggestions as someone who has done a little bit of research on um, other peace processes and conflict resolution processes. So I think the uh, biggest issue with the previous peace processes was that um, they were not transparent and they were pretty opaque. Uh, we didn't know what was going on behind the doors and uh, we didn't know about the terms of the uh, negotiations. Um, so um, one option would be to um, include representatives of all the, all the uh, parties in the, currently in the parliament um, because then that would lead to a much, um, much stronger agreement. Um, and um, it would also be much more inclusive and much more uh, pluralist than just including representatives of the ruling party and the Kurdish movement. I mean, of course, I understand the, the concerns for um, like a certain backlash that this might cause, but it also, um, 
is the only way to ensure that um, several segments of the population are being represented in these talks. So that would be my two cents on this issue. Let's move on to, to your book. And, uh, and your book is uh, uh, trying to explain uh, uh, the possibility of Islam as a conflict resolution tool for the, the, uh, the, the Turkey's Kurdish problem. And uh, when we talk about Islam as a conflict resolution tool, in Turkey, people mostly understand Islam as a supranational identity for Kurds and Turks. Mm -hmm. uh, in your book, you refer to this as the religious identity among your fourfold categorization. Could you a little elaborate on this identity and mm -hmm. what it suggests? Mm -hmm. Yes, sure, of course. Um, so I have this fourfold typology of identity categories in the book, as you say, um, religious, ethnic, ethno-religious, secular, and religious. So this uh, religious identity um, is usually put forward by those who, uh, who embrace an approach which sees um, Sunni Islam as the common bond uh, between um, Turks and Kurds in Turkey, uh, considering that majority of uh, Kurds and majority of Turks are Sunni Muslims. They suggest um, we should overlook um, ethnic differences and, and or national differences and we should just focus on our religious identity as the common bond uh, between us, they say. So, um, and um, under that rubric, they suggest that Islam can act as a conflict resolution tool. So this idea of Muslim fraternity could be implemented in solving this conflict and um, people should be um, kind of invited to highlight their um, religious identity and focus on their unifying um, characteristics rather than the more divisive in their mind, ethnic or national identities. And of course, uh, one, one thing to add here, this has its roots in the um, Islamic concept of Ummah uh, this unity of um, Muslims worldwide. Um, so the, the, its roots go to this um, understanding of the um, unification of Muslims worldwide. Dr. Turman, you, you conducted uh, more than 60 interviews as the field research. And, and looking at your interviews, especially the the Kurds that are subscribed to the identity, uh, this identity, regard the secular republic as the kind of as the ultimate other. Mm -hmm. They blame the republic for the Turk-Kurd division, mm -hmm. and there are references to nostalgia of Ottoman times and and anger about the closure of religious schools, madrasas. But as you give the history of the problem, we see that the problem is there even before the republic. So. So I, I, I mean, is this option a false premise of the use of Islam as a tool of conflict resolution just because it was not actually possible in the pre-AKP times? Is it still valid after AKP rule? Well, I mean, um, yes. Yeah, so in the interviews, that was a recurring issue. Uh, this uh, nostalgia for Ottoman times. And I uh, use a historical analysis in the book 
and I look at whether this premise really holds true when you look at Ottoman uh, history. And um, what I find is that, no, it doesn't. Like It is not that under the Ottoman Empire, Kurds and Turks were living together peacefully. To a certain extent, it was uh, better at times in terms of um, the autonomy given to Kurds. Um, it didn't really, um, I mean, there was a certain autonomy um, that Kurds enjoyed um, under uh, certain Ottoman um, sultans. Um, however, it was it was still a rocky road. It wasn't uh, without any problems. And I think this this kind of maybe we can call it a false premise, as you suggested, because um, usually it is pretty common in Turkey to um, to have certain um, suppositions about history without really uh, knowing the historical facts. So it is kind of like this um, nostalgic thinking about history, the way you want to envision it rather than the way it was. And I think that was what was happening in these circles. Um, they had a certain image in their mind of the Ottoman times, um, which was not really factually true, but um, this discourse is being passed on um, from one person to another, and then it, it kind of uh, becomes this um, narrative that everyone um, kind of assumes as true. Um, so I think that was what was happening there. But otherwise, um, I think it was not really, you know, it is not like all a fantasy. There is, a, as I said, there is a certain uh, truth to it, but it is not really uh, possible. <laughs> Um, and, and of course, in terms of the closure of madrasas, um, the, what was going on there was the uh, republic, the secular republican elites um, tried to um, kill two birds with one stone there because madrasas, even though they were um, symbols of, um, you know, religious scholarship, they were also uh, places where Kurdish nationalism um, was kind of coming into being. So by closing these madrasas, um, the secular Republican elites not only um, closed these religious education schools, but also they kind of prevented Kurdish nationalism um, from getting more full-bodied an ideology. So, um, and, and, and to your last question about like, does this disappointment mean that this identity is not an option anymore? I think it is still an option, but... Um, because there are still people who believe in that, but it is not a very realistic option. There is another identity you refer to, the Turkish Islamic synthesis. Mm -hmm. People that are subscribed to this identity are advocating for the superiority of Turks. Mm -hmm. You make an interesting point in your book that some claiming to subscribe to Islam as a supranational identity actually are inherently subscribe to Turks' superiority without even being aware of that. How is that possible? Is an average Turk, either secular, socialist, or Islamist, more nationalist than they are aware of? You provide striking examples in your book. Could you share some of them with our audiences? Um, well, I mean, I think rather than a question of not being aware of their nationalist uh, leanings, 
it is more kind of like they were trying to code that nationalism with a religious scarf. Um, but um, the more I talk with them, um, the clearer it was that, uh, you know, there was a nationalist current there. And, um, and um, some examples that, um, and, and I wouldn't really, uh, you know, want to, um, again, give an answer as to whether an average Turk is more nationalist <laughs> than they're aware of. But I think it also depends on how one uh, defines nationalism and um, how they see um, national identity. Um, but in terms of the uh, people I interviewed, like I could talk with more certainty about them, um, the ones who subscribe to this, uh, what I call an ethno-religious identity, uh, the one that prioritizes ethnicity, um, they, um, for example, some examples that they gave was, um, and this was common among most Turkish Muslims that I interviewed. And um, so one, uh, this was a, a Gulenist, uh, and he, he was saying that um, Turks and Kurds are one body, like we comprise one body, he said, um, and Turks constitute the mind while um, Kurds constitute the um, heart and the uh, legs and and um, and um, arms. So it is more like he was emphasizing how courageous Kurds are, but that there is definitely a need for Turks because they are the brain in this. Like they really are the ones who can think how to like strategize and how to lead this. Um, or, you know, there are also examples from uh, Menzil um, Tarika members who were also um, highlighting Turks superiority over Kurds um, in, in the interviews uh, that they gave. Um, so um, it was very much there, or, or, or you know, again, with the, um, uh, there is this discussion between um, Turkish Gulenists and Kurdish Gulenists uh, as to the omission of certain Kurdish words from um, Said and Ursi's writings. Um, so I think um, the, the kind of like the uh, common um, attitude that I saw among the Turkish Muslims was that they were undermining Kurds' demands, for example, for um, Kurdish sermons, they were saying, oh, well, like, why do we even need that? Everyone speaks Turkish in Turkey. Why would we even want to have Kurdish sermons or Kurdish prayers? So that could be some examples that I could give, I think. Well, well here uh, in, in your book, uh, I see that, that the, the secular Kurds are complaining about the, the nationalist so socialist friends and Islamist Kurds are complaining about their nationalist Islamist friends. Um, and, and in return, we see that actually currently the pro-Kurdish party, HDP, has both socialists and uh, Islamist MPs in the party ranks. Mm -hmm. So is HDP in a transformation from being an ethnic party to mainstream? Or um, how, how should we understand that? Well, I think they've been in that transition for a while now, but um, it because they uh, they included like Turks um, uh, again. Uh, it was not just Kurdish people who were um, 
their um, candidates in elections. Um, and uh, as you said, um, they kind of made an alliance with socialists um, and some Islamist MPs as well uh, are still in their ranks. So this is not something new. I think it has been going on for a while, uh, but it is just, I think they were not as um, successful in um, conveying this to the overall population in Turkey. Um, they are still seen as the Kurdish party, uh, only like exclusively Kurdish party. <clears throat> and of course, this is not, I think, um, as much as this is a failure of HDP, it is also uh, a reflection of the repression that they are facing. They're not allowed to really um, go on mainstream TV channels and they are not really allowed to, um, they are not really provided uh, public space to convey this to the, I think, um, to the overall population. So, um, yeah, so I think that would be my answer. I know you're not advocating for any identity, but if religion to be used to solve the Kurdish issue in Turkey is religious or ethnic identity, which is uh, subscribing to Islam, acknowledging the Kurdish ethnicity, is the most promising path, path for, for solution or what do, you, well, what do you think about that? So I, I mean, I wouldn't say that it is the most promising path. It's a bit more promising than just the, uh, yeah, uh, the religious identity, which um, puts forward Islam as a supranational identity and which is kind of blind to ethnic or national claims. Um, but it still leaves out, for example, non-Muslim Kurds or non-Muslim Turks or non-Sunni Muslim Turks and non-Sunni Muslim Kurds, the Alevis, for example, which uh, who constitute, a, a, again, a big... Um, a group in both Turkish and Kurdish populations. So uh, even though religious uh, ethnic identity could work better than, for example, religious identity, it still leaves out certain segments of the population. Um, so I wouldn't put it as the most promising path. Um, rather than that, I think a bit like this secular version, which also is much more sensitive to religious claims, would be a bit more inclusive and pluralist, um, but not like exclusionary secularism, but a bit more, as I said, pluralist secularist um, approach would um, try to include everyone um, in the peace process. So. So, so bringing all these identities together and, and uh, kind of examining all together, what would you say about religion to be used as, as, a, uh, as a conflict resolution tool in the particular case of Turkey and the Kurdish issue? Yeah, so I mean, I say in the book that it plays an ambivalent role because it is both used as a tool of assimilation at times, but it's also used as a tool of resistance by some Kurdish imams or Kurdish um, religious actors, um, as I uh, touch on in chapter three uh, with the Civil Friday prayers. Um, so I think that ambivalence is still very much there. And to a certain extent, it can play a unifying role. And it's, if you look at, for example, the electoral outcomes in the um, 
cities and in the regions where um, Kurds um, live, you can see that um, AKP and HDP are still the two parties that can, that can get Kurdish votes. And one reason for this is because HDP is, um, support, uh, is um, supporting uh, Kurdish demands and representing Kurdish demands. But for AKP, I think the religion factor still plays a big role um, with this um, electoral support. Um, so we cannot really ignore the role of religion, the importance of religion for certain um, groups in the Kurdish population. And it's still very much, um, I think, important. Um, so in that sense, it can still play a big role, um, a unifying role, but it cannot be the only unifying factor. So I think that was what was really missing in the previous um, talks. So uh, both Erdogan and Öcalan, they kind of like highlighted Islam um, and Muslim fraternity as a unifying discourse, um, but that was not really enough. I mean, that, and, and it will still not be enough as I said, because it leaves out too many people and too many different segments of the population. But of course, this is not only, I mean, it, it, no matter um, how important religion is, this also, the failure of the peace process has also other important reasons, such as the developments in Syria um, or internal political developments like the HDPs, um, uh, HDP's statement of uh, that showing that they will not represent Erdogan's bid for pre presidency, they will not support, sorry, Erdogan's bid for presidency. So there are also other factors. We should keep in mind that, um, you know, there are like internal and external factors that also led to this outcome. Dr. Turkman, thank you for being with us. Thank you for the invitation and for the very nice conversation. Thanks a lot. Phoenix Pod on international politics in Turkey from Phoenix Politics.